Yeah, good morning. I know many of us are sick, so thank, thankful for technology that allows us to connect and lay in bed and drink lemon water and um, still be together uh, today as we continue our series in Mark. Now next week, next Sunday, is going to be our Good Friday, if that's not confusing. So next Sunday will be actually our actual Good Friday message because we won't be here on Friday for Good Friday. Uh, and then we're two weeks out from Easter, which is awesome. So it's good that we get this sickness out of our system now. Uh, so that hopefully, God willing, in two weeks, uh, we're, we're back together for Easter and, and can really enjoy Resurrection Sunday uh, together. But this week, we're back into Mark, and we're going to focus on a little section of Mark chapter 14, uh, because chapter 14 is probably one of the like, most fast-paced, action-packed chapters in the whole gospel up to this point. And it's not only just action-packed, but it's also full of many famous and infamous moments that we know from Jesus' life and the gospel. Uh, we see the, the woman with the alabaster jar. We see the Last Supper. Peter's infamous denial of Jesus. We see Judas's betrayal of Jesus. We see Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see, of course, his arrest and his public trial before the authorities. Now, we're not going to cover all of that. And everyone's like, that, that's good. Right? What we are going to do is we're just going to zoom in on some of the dramatic tension that we see at the beginning of the chapter. Now, what's really interesting about Mark, I'll remind you of this, but at the beginning of the gospel, I showed you that Mark is one of the fastest, most like um, to-the-point gospels out of the four gospels that we have, out of the four biographies. But what Mark does, it's amazing, is that he actually slows the narrative pace way down for the last few chapters of his gospel. And those last few chapters cover just a few days. And so whereas he covers weeks and months at a time in like a verse sometimes, now we see him slowing way down. So, so again, you know, movie, movie buffs, just think of like this zooming in, this dramatic tension around this key moment. And we're going to see over the next 48 hours of the gospel, Mark spends a ton of time there. He spends a ton of time between kind of Wednesday of the Passover week to Sunday morning and the resurrection. And he wants us to really lean in and understand that that's the entire point of the gospel, amen? He's been leading us right to that point, that the entire reason for Jesus' life, the entire purpose of his teaching, the entire identity that he claims to have is wrapped up at this climactic moment of he's going to die and he's going to raise. And that's why Mark kind of just slows it way down and brings us into Passover that climaxes in the resurrection. All right? So let's read Mark uh, 14, verses 1 through, let's go to 11. And it was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. So you remember all of the public disturbance that Jesus has already been about, right? They've decided, we got to get rid of this guy. He is not good for business. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. So they're like, oh, let's wait until maybe after Passover, and then we'll get rid of him. Well, he was in Bethany, speaking of Jesus, at the house of Simon the leper. As he was reclining at the table, they're all eating dinner, it's a dinner party. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on Jesus' head. But some were expressing Anger, indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her, to scoff at her. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. 
I love when Jesus just like steps into a conflict. He's like, no, 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 this is not how this is going to go down. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You will always have the poor with you. And you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could with what she has. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and they promised to give him money for it. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now what's going on here? Well, we're sitting two days before the Passover feast. So think Wednesday. Passover happened on a Friday. And there was lots of called Seder meals. There was lots of like pre-parties happening all throughout Jerusalem. Pre-parties because this was the holiest festival of the year. This was their Super Bowl of the festival year. This was like their big party to commemorate what? Do you remember the Passover? To commemorate and celebrate the Exodus, right? To actually look and say, we're going to remember God's deliverance from slavery out of Egypt. And not just us physically being rescued and delivered from that, but we're also going to celebrate that this God still rescues and delivers, and we're hoping for a future way that he's going to do that. And so over centuries, the Passover celebrated that. And Jerusalem, the population of the city alone, was about 70,000. During these few days, it swelled to about a quarter of a million people. So the city went from 70,000 to the entire West Island. The city is packed. It's huge. It's so busy. And that's why they understand that they can't do it during Passover because the crowds are already so fond of Jesus. And they're like, no, no, if we try to go and betray him and arrest him now, we're going to get stomped in the street. And Roman authorities, and like during Passover, extra Roman guards were sent into the city because people were just partying. Mardi Gras, but way better, right? So this was a pre-Passover party that they were having at, did you notice whose house it's at? Simon the leper's house. Now usually you don't have contact with lepers, so we're assuming that Jesus probably healed Simon at some point because they're not going to go and hang out and have a leprosy exchanging party, right? That's not what they're doing here. But Jesus is at one of the most socially and marginalized person's house to celebrate the Passover, which as a leper, he wasn't even allowed. So the fact that we're actually seeing Jesus spending his time at this dinner party is already radical. Then it zooms in on one woman and her radical act of adoration for Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't name this woman, but John and Matthew do. And the reason why Mark doesn't is because I think Mark wants to pull us to the act itself and not to the woman. Not to her name, not her, her story or anything like that. He wants to highlight her act of adoration and worship towards Jesus. But what we do know from Matthew and John is that this is Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So not only is this a pre-party for the Passover, this might even be an after-party for Lazarus's resurrection. Imagine this party. Okay, not only is this Passover coming, but they've had a guy that was dead that's not anymore at the party. They've got a leper who's not, doesn't have leprosy anymore at the party, right? And they're having a conversation and they're like, so Lazarus, what was it like? 
what was it like being dead? And he's like, ah, it was bad. How bad does it feel that you have to do it again? And he's like, yeah, that's pretty bad, right? And then Simon is just like, wait, aren't you the leper who used to like hang out over there? It's like, yeah, but, but Jesus, like Jesus did something about that. Like Jesus restored me, he healed me. And then they're sitting reclining at table. Now in the ancient world, they would eat, um, and, and in, in several Eastern cultures still, they would eat and they would actually be facing inwards towards the table and their feet would be out, so they'd be reclining literally. So like before lazy boys were lazy boys, um, c- cultural ways of eating, you're like, you're like sitting like this with your feet out, staring at each other eating, like, oh, right? And that's what they're doing. That's the dinner party. Now it is like a motley crew here at this pre-Passover, post-Lazarus resurrection party, okay? And then Mark zooms in on Mary, zooms in on this act during dinner. She can't even wait to the end of dinner to express her public adoration for Jesus. Now, what does she do? Well, she comes and she breaks an alabaster flask. So alabaster is just marble, usually imported from India. Very, very valuable flask in and of itself, but it's actually the contents of the flask that is really valuable. It's the pure nard. It's the most expensive, luxurious, costly perfume of the time. And she comes and she breaks the neck off of the marble jar and pours it all over Jesus' head. Now, usually people didn't have these sitting around. Like this wasn't like, oh, I'll just have my pure nard, right? Most likely this is an heirloom and this is probably her family's heirloom that they've passed on for generations. This is her retirement plan. This is her nest egg. This is her future hope for how to take care of herself. And the people who complain about it tell us that, oh, we could have sold that for 300 denarii. It's a lot of money. That's about one year's salary for a laborer at the time. I looked it up for Montrealers. That's about $41,000. She's got this nest egg of an entire year packed away, her RRSPs or whatever it is. And she comes and she says, it is worth actually pouring this out on Jesus. What's really neat about this whole thing is, is we're not quite sure, but it looks like Mark is nodding to an anointing ceremony in this, right? So if you remember, think back to the Old Testament when there would be anointing ceremonies, which is what Messiah means, right? An anointed one. We would see prophets, priests, and kings anointed, but where were they anointed? They were anointed in public because an anointing ceremony usually happened to uh, kind of bring out a specific role and honor somebody to say this person is special and anointed for this specific task, this purpose. What's really interesting is when a king was anointed not in public but in private, it actually signaled a revolt. And I think Mark's doing this because Mark has always been really concerned throughout the gospel about the political and social tensions to say Caesar is not Lord Jesus is, right? And I think right here there's a bit of a nod that Mark is giving us that this is like a private anointing ceremony because a revolt is about to happen. A brand new kingdom is about to break out of what Jesus is about to do. A brand new rule and reign altogether that transcends all political categories. It's not right or left. It transcends all social categories. It transcends and over, overshadows all religious actions and teachings. Jesus is about to do that. So I think there's like a bit of a nod here where this act of adoration is actually an anointing of Jesus. Now either way, instead of anointing a priest or a prophet... In public, they're actually doing it in private, and we have an unnamed woman anointing Jesus in the privacy of a leper's house. (laughs) 
Everything is backwards about this. About the kind of kingdom, about the kind of rule, about the kind of reign that Jesus is about to set up. Now, this also is an extravagant display of love. Now, it's not just an extravagant display of love, but for Mary, you have to understand this is not just like an emotional response in the moment of I'm going to go and do this crazy thing for Jesus, but this flask actually represents security, safety, her future comfort, her retirement plan. And in this act, it's not actually just the value of the substance, it's the substance of what she does that is highlighted by Mark. What Mary is doing in this moment is she is saying, this was my security and my safety and my hope, but now you are my security, my safety, and my hope. That's what's happening. That's the heart level of adoration that's happening here. And it begs the question of us as hearers, as readers, what is your alabaster flask? Where do you put your hope, your security, your safety? Maybe it's one of those things that is still untouchable to Jesus. You've still not maybe given it over to him. You haven't poured it out on him yet because you're still keeping it away, tucked away in a jar. What's our alabaster flask? If If that thing was taken away, you'd lose your sense of hope and security. What is it? We all have kind of competing alabaster flasks, I think. That's what's happening here. What is something that if you lost it, you would feel like you lost yourself? Because that's what's happening here. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a job. It's a, it's a vocation. It's an education. Maybe it's a, a future career. Maybe it's a relationship you are in. Maybe it's a relationship you want to be in. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. There could be so many things that are good things, good things, great, beautiful things that become alabaster flasks for us that we actually look to and trust in those things over and above what God may call us to sacrifice for him. And we see Mary putting it all on the line here. She's betting it all on Jesus. And it begs the question of us, have we done that? Have we bet everything on Jesus? Or are there some things that we're still kind of holding back as untouchables? Of Jesus, yeah, you can change that part of my life, but don't touch that. Don't start talking to me about how I use my time. It's mine. It's me time. Don't start talking to me about my money. I worked hard for this money. Don't start talking to me about what I do with my body, my sexuality. It's me. I'm an autonomous, free individual. I can do what I want with my body. What is it for us? What is an alabaster flask that we are not yet willing to sacrifice and pour out on Jesus? Mary presents us with an amazing example of that. And here's the point. She's not doing it because she sees Jesus as useful. She's doing it because she sees Jesus as beautiful. And those two things are so different, brothers and sisters. Religion can see Jesus as as useful. We can want God for his stuff. We We can want God for what he can give us. That's religion. That's still centered on us. It's still centered on our desires, on our appetites, on on our intellect, on our ability to understand the gospel. But seeing Jesus as beautiful is what we see as the beginning of discipleship. I think right here, this is what we see. We see a public act done by Mary that she's actually now at the point where she's like, I get it. I see Jesus for who he is. He's not useful to me. He's beautiful to me. And now he can use me. And that's, that's way different. 
So for you and I, do we see Jesus as beautiful? Have we reached that level where we actually see Jesus for who he is and, and adore him and want to pour out everything that we have imperfectly for sure, but, but do we have that posture of just free, radically free, to just go and pour, bet everything on him, not hold anything back? Because that's the beginning of discipleship. That's the beginning of following Jesus. If you and I only turn to Jesus when things are good, or when only things are bad, we have not yet bet everything on Jesus. This is what we see here in Mary. Now, if you notice, the response of the crowd, John helps us because he actually zooms in on Judas, the rascal, right? He actually tells us that one of the biggest objections to this is actually from Judas. Here, Mark just tells us a bunch of people were ticked off and they went to rebuke her. The Greek there is like a, a snort, <laughs> whatever a snort is. I don't know, that's not a snort. That's like a growl. But they were like mad, right? Not just like, I don't know, I wouldn't have done that, but okay, cool, let's keep partying. But it's just like, no, no, stop the party. Like, this is ridiculous. What is wrong with you, Mary? Like, their dis- disapproval is very strong. And notice what they say. They're ticked off that she would waste something so valuable on Jesus. Um, saw one commentator this week say, all everybody in the room could see was the perfume, but all Mary could see was Jesus. And I love that. Because I think we see this like laser-focused trust and obedience and willingness to freely bet everything on Jesus and Mary here. And they're ticked off because she's doing it. Now John adds the footnote that they also didn't care about the poor. <laughs> so John helps us. The reason why, he, like, he tells us the heart motives as to why they're actually ticked off. Notice how they kind of self-justify and they get like self-righteous about it. They're upset that Mary would waste something so valuable on Jesus and they're like, I wouldn't do that. I would sell it and give it to the poor. And John tells us that's not true because they don't actually care about the poor. They care more about selfish gain. They care, care more about self-actualization. They care more about self-preservation than they actually do about the needy. And there's no, it's not different today. Some of the least generous people are the most outspoken about how other people live. Be careful. Watch out for that. Watch out for it in your heart and watch out for it in others. Some of the most vocal people about how money should or shouldn't be wasted or used are the least generous. Now listen, we're not God. We don't know people's hearts. But the fruit on the tree matters, amen? And when you see this kind of thing come out of people, you start to see the real root of their heart. And what's really important here is we have to understand that true obedience in private is far more important than displays of obedience in public. You with me on that? Way more important. Because anyone can fake it in public. But God judges and sees the heart. So listen, this is good. Getting together and praying is good. Getting together for for city group is good. What we do in the community is good. Loving and caring for our neighbors is good. But all of that can actually be done and look like righteousness and it have rotten roots to the core. And Jesus' call is always back to who are you in private? Who you are most truly is who you are when no one else is watching. You can't post about it. You can't airbrush it, you can't fake it, you can't force it. 
Who are you when no one else is looking? Because that is where you'll find your integrity or lack thereof. That is who you truly are. Where do your thoughts go when you're alone? What do you do in private that you are ashamed of that you wouldn't want somebody to know of? That's who you are. Your truest self is not what you can put on for others, but it's who you are when you're left alone. And here's the good news. This is the freeing good news and hope of the gospel is that God sees you there. Amen? God sees you there. Like, like he's not super concerned with what you can pull off publicly and get like an applause for being here. It's like, oh, good job, Scooter, you made it. No, no, no. God sees you in your private, at your lowest, in your most twisted, in your most lazy, in your most selfish, in your most angry. He sees you there and guess what? Relentlessly pursues and loves you there. And he forgives you there. And he redeems you there. And he changes you there. And then guess what? You go out into public because you're brand new. And your face is like shining now because you're different where it matters. The people that Jesus is harsh with are the people that think they matter in public. But God doesn't actually matter to them in private. I don't, I don't know about you, but like the fact that with all my compromise, all my partial obedience, all my acts of self-righteousness, all my conflicting desires and, 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 and struggles, that God actually sees me there and loves me changes everything, amen? Like it changes everything. And it changes us in public. There's something so empowering yet freeing about that. Not forceful, but, but, but powerful. There's a difference, right? Like there's something so empowering about that. And we see this humble, extravagant act by Mary in private as an example of what that looks like for us, an invitation to a humility, an invitation of not putting on things, of not putting on exterior performance. And what's amazing about the people who are so wrapped up with what they look like in public and what other people think about them is they actually think that Jesus is on their side. I don't know if you caught that. They're like, we would never waste that on that. We could go and help the poor. And they're like waiting for Jesus to rebuke her. They're like sitting on the edge of the seat, watch this. Yet Jesus defends her and tells them to cut out the nonsense and rebukes them. Right? If you noticed it in verse 6 through 8, we'll throw it up here. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always will have the poor with you, and you can, but you don't. That's, that's the point. You can do what is good for them. You don't, but you can whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Now, the Greek term there, the, the good work, that she has done a good work, it's actually a technical word that rabbis would use for all of the commands in Leviticus 19 about caring for the poor. It's a technical term Jesus uses on purpose, mainly to set them off, because they have a definition that excuses them from actually caring for people, right? So they're writing books and sitting in theological armchairs and pontificating about all sorts of righteous things and doing nothing. So Jesus kind of sets them off and uses the term that they use for doing good to show them that they're not doing any good. They're not caring for the strangers. They're not welcoming the widows. They're not offering what actually matters. They're not visiting the sick. 
They're doing nothing good. I see a lot of pragmatism in this text. I see a lot of them being practical as a way to get out of obedience. No, no, I'm just, I'm being wise. Pragmatism isn't faithfulness because principles are never more important and more valuable than people. Principles that don't lead us to love for and care for people are principles that need to be rejected. If your life is driven by principles that encourages you to do nothing, they're the wrong principles. And right here I see pragmatism being masked as obedience. Hey, all all things in moderation. Let's be wise about how we use our alabaster flasks, yet we see that they're disobedient and faithless and do no good. So we can like all things in moderation and be faithless and disobedient until we breathe our last breath. Or we can look at the example here of such a radical adoration and trust in Jesus that even the things we struggle to let go of, we're going to break the neck of those things and pour them out on Jesus because he's worthy of our trust. He won't disappoint. But do you see the faith here? You see the level of trust here? And the ones that publicly look like they're so full of obedience and so, so full of righteousness are empty. They're faithless. They're disobedient. And they're doing no good at all. I love how John just calls them on it. They don't actually care about the poor. <laughs> now, Mark also intentionally, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Mark intentionally ties Mary to the poor widow and her offering in the temple publicly. Remember that text? We see kind of like a coupling of the two women where the widow gives everything she has as an offering to God, and Mary here pours out everything she has as adoration for God. Radical trust of the poor widow and Mary are actually contrasted with the greed and the lack of generosity of the religious teachers. And here specifically, contrasted with Judas. Mary's complete trust here with all of her wealth is actually contrasted with Judas's betrayal of Jesus for wealth. Mark is brilliantly tying these things together. And also through the gospel, we touched on this a while back, Mark always highlights Jesus's relationship with women as not only countercultural, but revolutionary in social and religious terms. Always. You remember back in chapter 10 when we looked at uh, the passage about divorce, Jesus actually defends and protects women from the abuse of divorce laws and sexual exploitation. And here Jesus holds up Mary as the model of true faith. Jesus repeatedly amplifies women's voices in a culture where they are ignored and repressed. And that's important here because we see active adoration and worship from women while we see passivity and men standing around doing nothing. And if you remember the throwback to Genesis, well, how do we have sin enter the picture? Well, Adam wasn't doing his job. He wasn't being fruitful and multiplying. He wasn't protecting and caring. He was exploiting and being passive. We see the same thing throughout the Gospels. Jesus is amplifying faithful women. 
no, all right, not going to do it. Okay, let's go. Let's keep going. Jesus' comment that you'll always have the poor among you is really, really interesting. It has been misinterpreted, and you're just like, oh, okay. Uh, this is not Jesus being defeatist about, about solving poverty. It's like, well, poverty, don't worry about it, right? Like, that's, that's not what's happening here. What he's doing, though, is he's acknowledging that as long as there are people around to exploit, hoard, and prioritize selfish gain, guess what? Poverty will be a reality. That's what he's saying. It's just not permission to do nothing to alleviate poverty. I, like, I've literally heard that, like, preached, like, and written in commentaries of, like, here's why we should just continue to buy more vehicles and better houses. You're like, what? Crazy people. This is not permission to do nothing to alleviate poverty. But it's a sad reality that there will always be people who do nothing to alleviate poverty. That, that, that's what's here. That's the rebuke. That's the ironic rebuke that we see here. And actually, if you go read Deuteronomy 15, I think this is a direct hyperlink to Deuteronomy 15 that says, there should be no poor among you. I don't know, that's a contradiction, right? Like, well, but the poor will always be among you. So Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, in Deuteronomy 15, there should be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord has given you, he will richly bless you if you fully obey the Lord and you are careful to follow the commands I am giving you today. You see that? There's a flip side of that is that the presence of poverty is actually an indictment against God's people because it's evidence that God's people are prioritizing their own gain over care for the poor. This is the opposite of Jesus saying, don't worry about it. There's always going to be poor. poor. Poor people, poor circumstances, poor countries. There's always going to be poverty. Don't worry about it. Just keep doing you. Caring for the poor and the marginalized and the displaced and the down and out is actually one of the most repeated themes in all the Bible. I mean, we don't love it because in the West, we read our Bible differently. Looking for ways to prosper. Looking for praises to go up so blessings can come down. It's one of the most repeated themes in all of Scripture. I'll give you a few examples. The entire Old, Old Testament system was set up so that every seven years, poverty and debt were canceled. That's crazy. Every seven years, it's like, you got debts? Done. They're overturned. The poor were given special treatment to glean from the harvests of land. Right? The margin of all the fields Israel was commanded to not harvest to the edge so that they could allow the poor to come and freely take and eat. The courts legally were actually tasked with ensuring justice for the poor. And ignoring the poor is one of the main reasons for the exile. That's crazy. It's not that they didn't do their offerings right is that they thought that their offerings being done right while neglecting people in need was the point of the God of the Bible it's not at all care for the poor is a central aspect to living a truly righteous life so the Bible is crystal clear on this whether we want to see it or not that's up to us but the Bible is crystal clear that self-preservation and doing you and getting yours and living your best life while distancing yourself from the material needs of people locally, nationally, and globally is completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an anti-gospel. 
It's when we ignore the poor that we haven't rightly understood our own poverty. And this is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, can say stuff like, hey, I knew the guy, like, really well. And he can say stuff like, pure devotion to God is looking after orphans and entering into the distress of widows. That's pure devotion. Oh, no, but what about, like, my devos? What about, like, coming here? What about all, like, what, what, about, what about everything else? What about all the theology I know? What about all the, like, Twitter and Facebook arguments I can get on and, like, slam dunk on people and prove them wrong? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Are we looking after orphans and entering into the distress of widows? Or are we gleaning to the edge of everything that we have for ourselves? This is the rebuke here. So what does it look like? Well, I don't know what it looks like for you. It's actually not complicated, though. It is costly. And notice here, it's not about abundance, but about willingness. Did you catch that? Like, it's not about the, the value of the alabaster flask. That's why we see the poor widow tied into this, because it's not actually about the abundance. It's about the willingness. It's not actually about the amount. It's about the amount of trust and sacrifice. Amen? You see that? That's the point here. The key in the, in the text is what she had, she did, right? So what she had, she gave. I don't have a flask, right? Like I don't have an alabaster flask. It would look really cool next to my bobbleheads on my shelf though. If you know, you know. <laughs> but, but what is in your power to give, right? Like what, what do you have that's in your power to give? I'm thinking about what you don't. I don't know why we do this. Like, again, I, I get to pastor you, so I get to hear you uh, say, like, lots of great things, but a lot of, like, really complainy things, right? It's just so often it's just like, but I don't have this like someone else. And you're like, no, no, but what do you have? Like, what's in your power to give? Don't focus on what's not in your power to give. But I'm not like that person. I'm not gifted like them. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, you're breaking the commandment to not covet, first of all, so stop it, right? But like, what, what's actually in your power to give? What has God entrusted you? Let's focus on that. Consistent giving to the local church so we can support missionaries. Care for orphans and, 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 and being on, on mission locally, nationally, globally. Giving time away to serve. Some of us still have time that we can give simply. Not complicated, but just a costly giving away of our time. Seeking the needs of neighbors, praying about it, God forbid. That we'd actually pray about needs. It's like, I don't even see any. Start praying about them. You'll see them. Right? What does that look like? What does that posture look like? Uh, Paul, Paul like summarizes all of Jesus' teaching on just wealth and poverty and, and, and muchness and manyness. And he says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus... How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Canadian dream tells us the opposite. We don't believe that. Okay? I don't. I don't believe that. That it's more, like you're blessed more to give than to receive. I don't know about you. I like receiving. I'm the only one? No, no. I, I like getting stuff. I love getting stuff. I love getting stuff for myself. I love getting stuff from other people. Like, Dustin feels really good when he gets stuff. But Jesus shows up and he says, no, 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 no. You want to be blessed? You want to see what the blessed life looks like? Learn how to give away more. I'll, I'll, I'll fill things up. Like, I'll fill the alabaster flask if you just keep breaking the neck off of that thing and pouring it out for me. I'll keep filling it. 
so countercultural, like so against like the, the grain of our heart. Like that's just like wicked sandpaper, right? But it actually is. There's actually something about gratitude and generosity and stewardship that's connected with true worship of God. That's crazy. So many other things we point to to be like, look, this is my true worship of God. And the Bible pulls it back and says like, no, no, but this is, this is the main indicator. That's wild. And the key verse is verse nine, where Jesus says, everywhere the gospel's preached, what she did will be told. Guess what's happening right now? Guess what we're doing? We're doing that. Right, like we're preaching the gospel, we're here celebrating the good news of Jesus, and we're remembering Mary's sacrifice here, her act of adoration, her act of worship. It begs the question, church, is the gospel good news if it doesn't lead us to do any good? Is it? Is our view of the gospel correct if it doesn't lead us to do good? If you remember the first time that Jesus announces the gospel and his role as the one who brings the gospel, most fully in Luke 4, says that God has anointed him to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to prisoners, and to the re- for, for recovery of, the, of sight to the blind and set the oppressed free. That's the good news. Like the good news actually leads to good work. We have entire circles of Christians, or professing Christians, that sit around and have conferences and write books and write tweets about what the gospel really is and do nothing. Nothing. And encourage us to do nothing too. Oh, you have orthodoxy figured out? Yeah, make sure you, oh, heresy. Oh, oh, look at all the boogeyman out there. Like culture's coming in. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are we doing? Is the gospel good? Is it actually good news if it's not good news to the poor? The good news must always be followed by good work or it's not good news. Now there's a well-known verse in James 1 that says, be doers of the word, not just hearers lying to yourself. I think we got a lot of that. James 2, 14 through 17, I'll read it for us. It'll be up here. Another one example of this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, If someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save them? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, guess what that is? The poor. And one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But you don't give them what the body needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead. It's dead. We got a lot of dead faith masquerading as living faith. You got to think about faith and works as like two oars on a boat. If you only have one, where are you going to go? On one side, in a circle. You just spin in a circle. You get nowhere. But faith and works are like two oars, right? Two oars on a boat. You you actually can can move forward. You actually can do good. You can actually get ahead. And don't get it twisted. The gospel is about doing. I know we do this. Like, it's really straight. No, no. Saved by grace through faith. It's not about what we've done. It's like, okay, man. The gospel is about doing. It just starts with what God has done. Amen? Like, it starts with what he did for us. We don't work towards God's affection and forgiveness and redemption of us. We work from it. So the gospel is all about works. But it starts with Jesus' work on behalf of us sinners. And then, 
The fruit of that faith is that we actually get to go out and do good work in light of what God has done. Some of us grew up in traditions or even still kind of have this ingrained in us that we're saved from stuff. And the only thing we're saved to is like go and sit down half naked on clouds for an eternity and eat cream cheese. Like, like the gospel saves us from stuff, amen. But it saves us to good works. Like it, saved us, it saves us to work that points to the amazing saving power and grace of this God that we worship. And it's everywhere in scripture. Again, we don't, we don't see these. Titus 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Hear dead faith. 1 Timothy 5.10, have a reputation for good works. That's what he's saying to the church. That's not our reputation. That's, that's not a rebuke of us as Reach Montreal. That's our, I'm telling you, our reputation as the church and culture right now is not that. It's about all sorts of stuff we're against. It's about all sorts of stuff that we deem unrighteous. It's about all sorts of stuff that is just nonsense and a waste of time and energy but we think we're being righteous. Have a reputation for good work. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. That's our job. Let's stir each other up, right? Not justify nothing and passivity. Let's stir each other down. Let's just like hunker down because culture. No, let's stir each other up. Let's like work each other up into like a frenzy of good work. Amen? That's what the gospel leads us to. Because we get to work from the celebration that God has worked on our behalf already. And it's like, that's exciting. It's like, we get to celebrate that. We don't, get, we don't need to work for it, we work from it. That's amazing. So faith right here by itself is dead and Mary shows us exactly that. The opposite of it. True faith, living faith, radical, extravagant faith. Dead faith does no good. And I love that James gives an example, right? Because sometimes, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I suck at like illustrations and examples. Like I remember when I first started preaching like 12 years ago or whatever. And I was like never like the storytelling preacher guy. And I was always so mad because I was like, oh, those storytelling preachers are so good at illustrations. And I realized my gift was just to get up and yell for 50 minutes. So here's a good il illustration, okay? James says, well, if you see somebody with real material need and you say good luck, thoughts and prayers, good luck with that, your faith is dead. Yikes. It's that easy for us, right? Like, like our hearts are that apathetic. We're so bent on self-preservation that, that like that's it. Thoughts and prayers. I'll even go online and I'll be like, thoughts and prayers to the Ukraine. Hmm. 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 James is like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's dead faith. Faith that does no good is dead. Someone with dead faith is aware even of needs but does nothing aware of, of human trafficking and the terrible effects of pornography in our culture. The hundreds of thousands of abortions in Canada every year with young moms that think they have no other option. Orphans without stable homes or parents. Homelessness in our major urban centers. Single parents struggling to get by without anyone to turn to. Entire countries, entire cities without clean drinking water and food. 
and we send thoughts and prayers. I hope someone helps them out. I hope someone does something. Thoughts and prayers. What if we stopped hoping someone helps them out and understood that God has actually sent us to be the help? What if the church didn't simply pray for God to do more, but instead saw ourselves as the answer to prayer? That would change our posture so radically. Now, should we pray? Of course we should pray. We had a prayer meeting this morning. But prayer should propel us into action. Prayer should actually go and propel us into good work. Maybe that's why less of us were at prayer this morning. Our city would be different. Our families would be different. Our marriages would be different. Our singleness would be different. Canada would be different. The globe would be different. And a few verses later, I love that James actually, this isn't a sermon on James, but we're just going to keep going, all right? I love a few verses later, James actually, like, he has like an objection that he hears and he addresses it. So he addresses the pushback to this. So think Judas, think that crowd. They'd push back and they'd be like, no, we wouldn't do that. We'd be the ones that would actually be faithful. And this, this group pushes back and says, no, 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 you don't get it though. Like, like, you have the gift of works, but I have the gift of faith. They're like, no, no, your calling is like doing a lot, but mine is doing nothing. Right? You're like, what? Like, how do you justify that? Trust me, there's Bible verses you can use. People do it all the time. Why? It's our job to do nothing. Why? It's our job not to fix social or material injustice. Why? It's our job to just sit around and theologize and do nothing. And in this, James confronts two types of people. The works people minus faith people. So they do a lot of good work. People that are really serious about getting busy for the gospel. Let's just go and love people. Let's go love them. But they never actually tell them the truth. They never actually call them to repentance. They never actually call them to the gospel. The second group is the faith minus works people. These are the armchair theologians with more degrees than Fahrenheit. No sacrifice for Jesus. No care for the down and out like God commands. Faith that works leads to work. That's what James is getting at. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I remember him being asked, what's, what's most important, faith or works? And he said, well, that's like asking which blade of a pair of scissors is more important. <laughs> like if you only have one blade of the scissor, you don't have scissors, you just have a choppy, slashy thing, right? Like <laughs> you just lost your scissors. That's exactly it. Faith and works absolutely go together. They can't, not. But we also have to hear that not doing the right thing is still choosing to do the wrong thing. Procrastinating from something that we know God has called us to or something that scripture has commanded us to is disobedience. You with me on that? It is. It's just the other side of the coin. Now listen, here's the good news. Sometimes we're slow to good works. I don't know why you are. I know where, why I am. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's fear of rejection. Uh, sometimes it's just passivity and I'm just in a season where my heart just doesn't feel it. I'm just apathetic. Sometimes it's just straight up laziness. Other times I feel insecurity. So I don't know what it is for you where you kind of find your, your like false starts where you're not able to maybe follow through on some things. 
But let's start where we, what we do know for certain, what we're actually commanded to for certain. Show up. Be present. Continue to repent of sin. Continue to fight hard for your faith. Do something. Make a difference. Steward what God has given you. Don't waste your life. That's where we can start. And whatever that looks like at a micro level day to day, or week to week, or month to month, or year to year, that's for us to come and radically throw everything that we have on Jesus and ask him to make something big out of the little that we have. And we'll close with this. Notice the last two verses here about Judas. It's like, why would we close on Judas? (laughs) Oh, well, watch. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he's in the inner circle, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad. They're partying. And they promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Listen, Judas sees this whole thing happen. He watches Mary's adoration. He understands what's going on there. And he leaves unchanged. Not only that, he leaves more hardened than when he was there. He leaves that act of adoration. He leaves that display of faith unchanged and hardened. It reminds me of just a famous statement that it's the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice and can melt a human heart to the glory of God is the same sun that hardens the clay. And it's this act right here that Judas goes, that's it, I know what I'm gonna do. And what's wild is that Mary's adoration for Jesus is contrasted directly with Judas's selfishness and greed because Judas is willing to sacrifice Jesus for his own gain. And it's like a third of the amount of that alabaster flask. 30 pieces of silver doesn't lead to much denarii at all. Like this cat is willing to sell Jesus out for nothing really that valuable. And so we see this contrast happening between the two. Because Mary is willing to sacrifice everything she has for Jesus, and she ends up gaining everything. So the warning for us is that we don't leave here unchanged. That we be able to follow what Jesus says here, is that every time the gospel's pronounced, her example will be remembered. And that it wouldn't just be, that's a cute example, but that we'd actually leave here not hardened, but softened. Not not unchanged, but changed. So here's how we're going to respond. If all you've heard this morning is I got to do more, you've missed it. The point of this text is not, let's go out and do more. Gospel obedience is that we need to love better. And not that we've loved first, but that it's God who has loved us first and we get to then go out and live that out in obedience, amen? Amen. So don't leave here with a legalism. Don't leave here with a shame or guilt of what you haven't been doing. But see this as an encouragement to say, what have I been given? What what is in my power to give? Maybe I haven't been doing a good job. That's okay. That's yesterday. But today I get to leave here. Not unchanged, not hardened, but changed. And willing to take out my alabaster flask and break the neck of that flask and pour it out on Jesus and pour it out on him, and bet everything that I have on him. Because true faith, church, shows up in obedience in God for no other reason than delighting in him. 
My prayer for us is that our hearts would be just set aflame again this morning for adoration of God. That, would, that will lead to obedience, I promise, it will. But let's start there. Let's start with delighting in him. And let's also recognize James's warning and ask whether we are hearers of the word or doers of the word. There's nothing more important about these moments than the six days between these moments. You hear me on that? Like, like this, this is not it. Like, like if you walk out of here today and the rest of your week, you just live it like a practical atheist and God is just not even in the picture, this is not doing it. The most important thing about this moment is that this is the moment that propels us outwards and propels us into obedience and propels us into repentance and propels us into confession of sin. Amen? So let's be doers of the word. Let's not just walk away and go, that was inspiring, that was cute, Dustin was sweaty. It's like, no, 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 let's go. How do we obey this word all week, church? How do we go and obey this all week? How do we go and pray into this all week? And the next Sunday, guess what? We'll be back here. And we'll have another word. We'll be able to hear the gospel again. And we'll be able to go back out and be doers of the word. Not for us. Not because of us. But for the fame and name of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, there's nothing that we can do to impress you. To disappoint you. To turn your eyes away from us in disgust. But that in the gospel, we experience a sonship and a daughtership and belonging and affirmation and approval and an identity because you first love us. And I pray that that love, we would experience it fresh again today. That our adoration would be turned away from things that will not satisfy and we would be able to put everything on you, bet everything on your name, And I pray for us at Reach Montreal, us right here, us on the live stream, us that call this church home, that we would continue to strive to be doers of the word, not just hearers. There's so many outs. There's so many ways to just be disobedient and look righteous. We're not interested in that, Jesus. We want to put your name on display for this city in ways that melts hearts calls people to repentance, calls us to confess our sin, our weakness, our dependence upon things that don't satisfy and come and pour them all out on you. So I pray as we sing, as we reflect, as we think, as we respond, Spirit, we believe that you speak today. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would bring things back to our mind, you would bring people in need to our mind, that you would illuminate us that we would be able to walk out of here so committed to doing the word, Lord, and so hungry to hear more of the word that our families, our communities, and our city would never be the same because of it. We commit this into your hands and ask that you would make much of it for your fame. And we ask these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.